G'day and welcome to Overdrive, where we come to you this week from Melbourne, Australia, at the National Conference of the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management. And in this program, we will focus on an interview with Bill Allen, an international expert in computer modelling of transport networks, and has over 40 years' experience in the business. His is not a technical presentation, but rather one of the difficulties and pitfalls of trying to deal with a broader political and community environment to make sure the models are reflecting real needs and overcome some inherent biases. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or go to the socials of iTunes, Spotify, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube and look for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 16th of September 2023. This week we've been at the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management's National Conference held in Melbourne where over 300 people are in attendance On the first day at a modelling workshop, I was asked to facilitate a session with four renowned people as an introduction to the discussion. Now, sessions like this can be heavily technical in their approach. Yet, to start the program, it was felt that we should try to make sure we are thinking of our role within the context of the broader decision-making processes. This is the introduction I gave. There's always been a need to define and describe complex situations in a manner that helps us and those around us understand the bigger picture. In other words, a model. We are here today to continue the development of the best symbolic understanding of the transport task and what the solutions could be. In the face of massive changes, we should consider the balance of being technically right along with helping others understand, contribute and ultimately own the solutions. Telling people our final answer is rarely convincing on its own. I read the other day about William Douglas, once a Supreme Court judge in America, who described the Supreme Court as being like a monastery, thoughtful but isolated. He saw the need to mix widely in the world. Now, the great thing is modellers have a wealth of information that they can work with communities and other stakeholders to see how things fit together, which includes listening to their side of the equation. Hence, the title of this panel session is Guessing the Future or Facilitating Change, The Modeller's Dilemma. We have four people on the panel who want to develop and use our insights as part of a broad process. Bill Allen from America has over 45 years of consultancy experience. His perception on what we can do and how we might do it are profound. Arndt Vogel from Germany is his company's link between software programmers and what customers say they need. Alexa Del Bosque is an experienced researcher and now oversees the teaching of technical subjects in transport at Monash University, but she also introduces young students to the broad concept in which their efforts will be considered. And finally, Ingrid Burkett is the director of the Griffith Centre for Systems Innovation, whose purpose is to accelerate transitions to regenerative and distributive economies. 
We heard this morning a welcome to country. I think there are at least two aspects of the First Nations people's culture that greatly reconcile with our need to have an engagement process. I was in a local museum recently and saw an example of a breastplate that the early colonists gave to a local First Nations person to signify a high status. I was told this wasn't really appropriate, for while our First Nation brother and sisters respect their elders, they have a flatter social structure with strong engagement more than celebrating an elite few. Later, at the more formal get-together, Uncle Bill gave a welcome to the country and I spoke to him about these breastplates that were provided and he said, yes, they misunderstood. We, the First Nations people, call them dog tags. But the second point, when they travel, they do not rush as we do, oblivious to the environment around us, as we in our big four-wheel drives zoom past schools, hospitals and homes. They created songlines. They sang of the things they saw. At the launch of the Western Sydney University's latest student-run solar race project, in the Welcome to the Country, Jess Olm asked us to walk gently through the country and listen and act on what it is telling us. Surely that must be a valuable insight into one of the three pillars of this conference, placemaking, especially if we want to judge a place by more than just its commercial success. You're listening to Overdrive. Some of the things in terms of the modelling, some people working some of the time from home, so I'm not creating a utopian world of all or nothing, still might then lead to things like moving out of the peak and travelling at different times. Our models in the past have tended to be constrained. You know, All the trips within the peak are going to remain all the trips within the peak. Are we moving towards being able to under- incorporate things like working from home, which may change, not just if they travel, but when they travel? Yes. I've developed a couple of models recently that directly incorporate telecommuting as an option. So the user of the model has a lot of control over where and when telecommuting is allowed to occur and under what circumstances. And then, of course, that definitely influences the the amount of trip making. We haven't quite gotten to the point, as far as I know, that of the nuances that you're talking about, about, okay, the person that stays home may make different trips instead of commuting to work. They may, may go to lunch or something during the middle of the day. Uh, we're not quite at that level yet because we, again, we don't have really the best information possible on what those people are doing. All we know is they, they didn't commute to work that day. They stayed home and worked it from home, but we suspect they did other things while they were at home, but we just don't have good information on that. It's tough to get that. The grand models, are they striving to be the theory of everything when in fact perhaps that's not possible? But if you were to get some good information that help you broadly, might that not then pass on down to a more local model who might then take it in more detail of the sorts of trips you were talking about? Yes. In fact, that's that's becoming pretty common in the US, this multi-level modeling. Uh I've seen models that start off at a super regional level, capturing uh, trips of uh, 100 to 150 kilometers long through 
into and through the urban area, then that steps down to a metropolitan area model. And then that steps down to a neighborhood level model that provides uh, much more detail. And each these models are all connected to each other where each model feeds the next model down and provides more information. And that's happening more. Is there a passion from governments to use it or to be aware of that and to try and make the most of it? Starting to be. It needs to be more prevalent. So that's part of the role of the profession of not just to say, pay for me to do my little exercise that I enjoy doing, but here is some real uh, personable outcomes from it that you can relate to and perhaps even a politician can readily sell. Yes. Yes. It depends on, you need a modeler who is able and willing uh, to look at the bigger picture and, and look at, you know, everything down from a, a single intersection up to a mega region and how these two things uh, interact. Well, you need a group that can combine those sorts of thoughts together. Yes. And perhaps not just a group of modelers, but perhaps a group of broader range of professions. Are you seeing modelers having to deal with other professions in more intently than they might have had in the past? I wish. I wish they would, uh, because modelers tend to, as you know, exist in their own little world, and they sometimes don't realize the the value of what it, the, the data they're, they're, that they're putting out, the conclusions that they're making, and that these have to be communicated to the outside world, and, uh, and there needs to be an, uh, an interplay b- between both groups, and uh, there's not enough of that going on. We, we need more of that. We need more questions to come in from the outside world. So, so if I'm the modeler, it's a common issue that I have. What, and you're, and you're, the, you're the policymaker or the decision maker or somebody outside the modeling group. So my question to you is, what do you want to know? What do you need? What information do you need to make a decision? What are you looking for out of the model? And then if you can communicate that back to me, I can say, okay, you need to know this and this and this. So I can build that into the model so that it gives you the outputs that you need. This dialogue isn't as common or as uh, organized or as fruitful as it needs to be. So that's part of the role of the profession of not just to say, pay for me to do my little exercise that I enjoy doing, but here is some real personable outcomes from it that you can relate to and perhaps even a politician can readily sell. Yes, Yes. It depends on, you need a modeler who is able and willing uh, to look at the bigger picture and, and look at you know everything down from a, a single intersection up to a mega region and how these two things uh, interact. Well, you need a group that can combine those sorts of thoughts together. Yes. Perhaps not just a group of modelers, but perhaps a group of broader range of professions? Are you seeing modelers having to deal with other professions in more intently than they might have had in the past? I wish. I wish they would. Uh, because modelers tend to, as you know, exist in their own little world. And they sometimes don't realize uh, the, the value of what it, the, the data they're, they're, that they're putting out, the conclusions that they're making, and that these have to be communicated to the outside world. 
and uh, and there needs to be an, an interplay b- between both groups. And uh, there's not enough of that going on. We we need more of that. We need more questions to come in from the outside world. So so if I'm the modeler, uh, it's a common issue that I have. What and you're, and you're the you're the policymaker or the decision maker or somebody outside the modeling group. So my question to you is, what do you want to know? What do you need? What information do you need to make a decision? What are you looking for out of the model? And then if you can communicate that back to me, I can say, okay, you need to know this and this and this. So I can build that into the model so that it gives you the outputs that you need. This dialogue isn't as common or as uh, organized or as fruitful as it needs to be. Does it need to have an attitude of interactive, doing a bit not as a conclusion but as a suggestion that someone might say, well, I want to have this. Well, if you do this, among other things, this will take so much money and not allow us to do others. Is that iterative possibilities important? Yes. You're you're moving in the direction of the way planning should be done. Now, in many cases, that's not the way it is done. We have an institutional constraint on all of us as modelers and planners. And what that is, is that what drives our process, what drives a lot of planning, what drives most modeling, isn't the quest for knowledge or the quest for communication that you're talking about. It, what drives the process is a particular infrastructure project. Yes. Somebody outside your and my world has decided that a new bridge is needed or a new subway line or a new toll road or we need to widen this road from four lanes to eight lanes. Somebody has decided this almost independent of anything. And and so the question then comes, is this particular project, which has been defined, a good idea? And so an awful lot of travel modeling is engaged and is set up to merely answer that particular question, Hmm. not to answer the larger question of, well, what should we be, you know, what should we be doing? Mm-hmm. An awful lot of the modeling I've done over the years, I would say most of it, is simply to provide a yes or a no uh, to that particular question. Is is that a good use of the public funds? Is is it a good idea to do? And in a great many cases, and I hate to say this, but in a great many cases, the, the answer has already been decided. Perhaps the answer they want is yes. The answer is always yes. Uh, there, there's an old saying in my business, you know, because a lot of the firms that are hired to do these studies are the big engineering firms. And so it's like asking a barber if you need a haircut. Is there a need, too, for transparency then on what factors we put into a model? We often get the end result of the model after there has been pressure from a variety of sources to try different parameters different factors. And sometimes it seems to me we then end up with what needs to be really given as a range or an understanding that this will happen only if this other land use and so and so happens, or only if we make the toll this or or don't make a toll at all. Is, Is there a need for transparency? Because quite often we get, well, my model says this, and I'll I'll present that because it's what I want to know without knowing what I've assumed to get that number. 
one of the great controversies in travel forecasting over the last 20, 30 years has been the comparison to looking backwards, the comparison between what was forecast for a particular project and what actually happened. Uh, the most egregious case in the U.S. was an example many years ago of a subway being planned for Miami, Florida. And the the company that did the forecasting uh, was doing this for the, for the agency that wanted to build the subway. So everybody was you know, on board with building this subway. And they forecast that opening day, they would get 100,000 riders, which is about the number that you needed to, sh to justify the project and to show that it was a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, when opening day occurred, they got 10,000 riders, one-tenth of what they actually forecasted. And that was used as, a, as an example of extreme optimism bias and, and the over-reliance on faulty assumptions uh, there was just just a terrible example of it. The U.S. government later looked at a number of these projects and said, lo and behold, almost all of them forecast, the, the forecast number of riders, and it was, they were focusing primarily on transit systems, new new rail lines and, and things like that. The, the forecast ridership for opening day far exceeded what the actual numbers were. And a lot of it, when they went back and asked why, why did this happen? A lot of it went back to what you just said, uh, overly optimistic assumptions about land use, about uh, fares, about pricing, about uh, competitive modes happening uh, on opening day. But a lot of that goes back to what's called optimism bias, where the whole process is geared towards this, again, this one infrastructure project, and it's all geared towards making that project look good and making it happen. Another study that was done a couple of years ago was by a professor in Denmark who actually wrote a very interesting book uh, on, a sim on the same subject, but from the perspective of uh, mostly toll road projects worldwide and looking at the issue. And this has been a big issue in Australia, as you probably well know, uh, toll road forecasts of revenue and, 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 and demand of traffic way exceeding what occurred opening day. And, and it becomes an issue, particular issue in the case of toll road studies, because in the case of toll road projects these days, most of these projects are, at least in large part, privately financed. Mm. So you've got the, the private uh, sector putting up their own capital to build these things. And if the, if the demand isn't there, um, well, all hell breaks loose, as it has, uh, at least uh, on, in more than one occasion in Australia. Mm. Over, or over some of these um, these things not coming true. Quite often a light rail is the first section is put in with ribbon cutting and great things and uh, with great visions of extending it, but it, then the cost becomes so prohibitive. Exactly. That it, you can't, and and you, perhaps that's what you were saying about the American system, that they don't have great variation. They have a number of very as it were, almost short, sharp, well, well, limited number of public transport options because right. to extend it becomes very expensive. Absolutely. It's also the way then of we measure that the total number of people on a train might be a good thing, but it might not be those people's first choice. The mere fact that we've got numbers on them is only a, a suggestion that it's 
they've you know that, that that's their only alternative they may have had to go out of their way quite a bit in order to use that service not least of which of course rail stations are quite far apart i'm not condemning the rail but i'm just right. making sure that we understand whether a good number on there is actually serving a good community purpose if one is doing an honest forecast a truly objective, a truly honest job, which I've always tried to do in my career, and I've been roundly criticized for it, then yes, you would look at the, the kinds of things that you're describing. But so many of these projects, again, I, I hate to be overly cynical about this, but so many of these projects start off from the very beginning as we don't really want to know an honest answer. We, we just want an answer from you that justifies this rail line. Let me tell you another story. I worked on a rail study in uh, near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, many years ago, and there was an existing bus, several bus lines uh, running up and down this corridor, and they wanted to put a rail line in because the governor had promised this when she was running for office. She promised this area, uh, oh, I will get this rail line built for you, and it will revitalize the area. And so she was delivering on a political promise, basically. And I looked at this corridor and said, well, these buses are carrying a few people. They're not, you know, maybe not even half full. There's no need for a rail line. You don't need this kind of capacity. It makes no sense. And I looked at it several different ways and said, listen, the, the best number I can come up with is to, in terms of a daily ridership is about 6,000 riders a day if you put in a new rail line. I think I think there were 4,000 people riding the buses. And if you if you change them over to rail, it might be more attractive and would get 6,000 riders. When the, so that was my suggestion to the, to the project sponsors. When the final report came out, they put a one in front of my number and said they were going to get 16,000 riders, not 6,000. Literally just made that up. They just literally put a one hmm. in front of the number that I gave them. That's the sort of thing that goes on uh, in, in the U.S., to try to justify these kinds of projects. And the thing that I thought was hilarious was why would, if you were going to make it up, why put a one in front of the six? Why not put a two or a three or a four, <laughs> you know, to, to show real ridership? Because let's face it, even in, in that context, even 16,000 riders a day really wasn't a whole lot. <laughs> I later found out the real reason for why they did that. The project sponsor was a particular was a public agency that that, that ran uh, transit in northern New Jersey, and the particular project manager was a guy on loan from London Transport. Mm. He was a London native, but they had loaned him to this uh, New Jersey agency, and he was charged with getting this rail line built. And I asked him about it. He said, "I like living in the states. I don't want to go back to London, so it's my job to get this rail line built." And so I'm going to do whatever I have to do to, to make it work. So you have that sort of thing that goes on. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's common, but it's unfortunate when that sort of thing happens. I offended the light rail lobby. Not that I'm against it, but they were proposing a short, sharp section of light rail, which required everyone coming into the city on a bus to change and do the last <laughs> kilometre or so. Ah, uh, yes. I was asked, I'd set off air, but and was pushed on air. It was talkback radio. Uh, I made the comment that too often this is an approach of the answers a tram, now what's the question? Yes, I have seen that story 
way too many times in my career. And it's particularly a problem, as you, as you discovered, when you're talking about rail, there are, there's a certain segment of the population that has romanticized, that's the best word I can use, romanticized travel on rail as it is sexy, it is cool, it is something that we want to do. And so um, when a, a project comes up, a rail project comes up for, for consideration, um, everybody just assumes that it's more attractive and, and a better deal than the buses that it would replace. And that isn't always the case. So an honest forecast would look at all the options that are available, would look at the buses, would look at providing equivalent level of transit service in terms of walk and wait time through buses and, and say, look, uh, yes, there is some evidence. It's a little, it's pretty small, but there is some evidence that suggests that faced with the same option, if I can walk over here and take a bus that runs every six minutes and costs me $2, or I can walk over there and take a train that runs every six minutes and will cost me $2, and they both get me to the same place, eh, I will probably prefer the train most of the time. There is a slight, a slight preference for train travel. I understand that, but not this big. You know, it's, it's this big. It's not this big. But um, mm. project uh, analysts are, are bullied and, and forced to make it seem greater than it is or to, to spin the numbers around and only show the numbers that make the project look good in order to justify these projects and, and make them seem like a, a wise use of the public's money. It's a routine problem. I call it the Thomas the Tank Engine principle of land use transport planning. I'll finish on this. You had a member of your Supreme Court, William, I think, Douglas, who was a bit of a revolutionary, but he said that the Supreme Court could be a bit like a monastery and that you are going over the sacred texts and doing things very genuinely but it can be very isolated. And I'll go back to that point you made about modelling that is not only isolated in terms of the people doing the work, but perhaps the people who are dictating the work as well, and that we're not making that link to what really should be a pastoral care, if, if I may use that analogy, for the community. Are we a bit of a monastery on occasions? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the, the, the key to, to doing modeling in, in a better sense is to ask a broader set of questions rather than to focus on one particular project. But uh, it's just the, the, the way that the, the, the profession has evolved over the years is that we just tend to focus on this one project because that's that's what drives everything. That's what creates the need. It quit, it's what creates the budget. It's what motivates the data collection. I mean, a lot of, a lot of surveys uh, that, that generate the data for these models wouldn't even be done if it wasn't for the need to justify a particular infrastructure project, whether it be a toll road or a bridge or a subway line. It's very unfortunate. I'd love to take this further. I've taken a lot of your time, but uh, Bill, thank you very much. I appreciate that greatly. Sure. 
This is Overdrive across Australia. There is still room within the modelling process for technical people to sit quietly on their own or with a small group and contemplate how they might provide information that helps the process. There is a great example. Gregor Johann Mendel is now known as the father of genetics. He was a Franciscan monk who became an abbot, surely an experience that one would think kept him busy within a cloistered life. Yet he also did huge amounts of research on the breeding of peas, which led to an understanding of genetics. The sad fact is that when he died in 1884, it wasn't until 30 years later that his work and its value was discovered. I did suggest that perhaps an alternative title for the session might have been not just sermons, but pastoral care. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Bill Allen and Mark Wesley for their great help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or go to the socials and podcasts and look for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.